0: Aside. Hey, hey, welcome back to Stub Me Down. My name is JW, and as usual, I am joined by my best friend and the best co host in the podcasting business, my buddy Skinny, who is going to be in the minority today. Skinny, the only person on the show not from the great state of New Jersey. So, Skinny, grab yourself a pork roll, leg and cheese on a hard roll and pick what road you're going to, either the Garden State Parkway or the New Jersey Turnpike and buckle in because we got a show today, my friend. Say hello to the people.
1: Hey, man. What's up? Hey, everybody. It's good to hear your voice, J-Dub. I'm, yeah, I'm not from Jersey, but I know a lot about it. It's not that bad. It's, it's not what they <laughs> say. It's not all about exits. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've
0: spent a little bit of time there between uh my hometown and the shows that we've seen there. And of course, driving through on the way up to New York City. So we'll uh we'll consider you a, a temporary Jersey boy for for today's episode. Skinny, today's episode is actually going to be pretty fucking cool. I'm very excited about this. We've been talking about this and planning it for a few weeks now. So I'm so excited to see it all come together. You know, we really haven't recorded anything in a while since season two ended. We have a New Year's run, Fish coming up, MSG. MSG. I was in Vegas. We'll talk about that all at some point, but we're going to jump right in to today's episode. As I alluded to, we are going to be joined by a really cool guest today. He currently plays trumpet in a band called Roomful of Blues. He had a 30 year career in the United States Navy. But you all probably would recognize him from his time in the Giant Country Horns, who played with Fish for 14 shows back in 1991 during their summer tour. It is our great, great pleasure to welcome Carl Gearhard Gears, to Stub Me Down. Carl, man, thank you so much for taking the time out to be with us today. I know you have been playing some gigs with Roomful, um, so we are
1: both super. So happy to have you on Stub Me Down today.
2: Thanks so much, Josh and Skinny. It's great to be here.
1: Yeah, man. I, I'm really excited for today. Now, let me ask you a question Is your nickname, is it Gears? It is. Is that your nickname? Yeah. Now, is, is that with a Z? Because I think that would be cooler. <laughs> or is it an S? It,
2: it, 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 actually, it actually is. I think uh, it's been all, all kinds of spellings, but uh, a great friend of mine, Marty Harris, said, No, this is the way you're going to spell it. So, uh, we go way back, so I said, "Okay, man, that's how you do it. All right, <laughs> that's great.
0: I did look in the Fish Companion for the ninety one summer tour, you know, their take on it, and it's officially in there, spelled g e e r z so wow, you know that 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 sounds like that sounds like the
1: winner there, so it sounds like Marty got it right,
2: yeah, let's go with it.
1: It's better than my nickname, I mean <laughs> because I'm not so skinny anymore. <laughs>
2: <laughs> me awesome.
1: we call sometimes we call it medium. well welcome in we're so happy to have you it's going to be a great day today i know that
0: so basically, we just kind of wanted to start off talking a little bit about your time with the Giant Country Horns. Can you give us a little bit of an overview about how that band came together, how you knew Dave Grippo and Russell Remington, and really how you guys connected with Fish prior to that 91 summer tour?
2: Yeah. Um, well, actually, you know, I kn- I've known Paige almost my whole life, and we started playing together, I guess, when we were about 11 or 12 years old. and kind of started our own musical thing back in New Jersey. So I was actually stationed in Newport, in the Navy band there. And I had sat in with Fish. I think it was 88 at the Stone Church and um, got a chance to meet the band and and hang out and and talk to the guys in the band for a while. And and that was just a lot of fun. We played a a bunch of cover tunes and I had gone back up. Uh, They wanted to do a, a gig under an assumed name. I think it was in the end, end of 90, maybe early 91. They wanted to play at Nectars under, uh, they wanted to do a jazz gig, but they didn't want to be called Fish. So I think they called it the Johnny B Fishman Jazz Ensemble. So I went up and uh, Paige called me and I, and I went up there and we ended up, uh, Dave Grippo was was on the on the band as well. And that's the first time I met Dave and we played Probably about an hour into the set, the the word got around that it was actually fish at Nectars and not a jazz band. And that kind of took off. So the next day after the gig, Trey's like, hey, we want to do a tour this summer with horns. You know, can you get some time off from the Navy? And and I said, well, how much time? Because in the the Navy band, you get basically around two weeks in the summer and then two weeks in the winter. because We had a performing schedule as well. Um, so I went back to my boss and let him know that, Hey, you know, I really want to extend my time off this summer if I can to play with this band. And he's like, well, I guess as long as you come back and he was, he was really, uh, very supportive of it. And uh, that was good. I mean, I'm, I'm a trumpet player. So we had a few trumpet players in the band. I, I guess if I was a drummer or a bass player, I can't do a gig without those folks. So anyway, that's how it started. And that one time that I played with David and then, um, you know, they added Russell to round out the horn section. And uh, that's how it got started. And they sent some, uh, sent some tapes down to hear some tunes that we were thinking about doing and and a couple of charts that Trey written, had written out. That's, that's how it kind of got started.
0: So you met Dave
2: and Russell through Fish?
0: Yeah. Or because of Fish?
2: Yes, through Fish, right. Uh, yeah, the first the first day that I met Russell was actually the first hour of basically a 48-hour uh, rehearsal, you know, straight at the band house. And I think it was in Winooski. I mean, those guys, aside from the great guys in Fish, you know, playing with uh, Russell and Dave, it's like playing with two Pele's soccer team. They're just phenomenal musicians, and uh, we really hit it off, and it was just great.
1: That's amazing. I would have a hard time asking my boss for two weeks to, <laughs> to go on tour to tour around with a band right now. <laughs> I mean, in the middle of the summer, I mean, what could he do? Because I'm a teacher. But I mean, I, right. I, I commend you for that, because that is like steel cojones. Like, I, I don't know how that works. Obviously, I've never served to be able to ask, like, hey, I'm going to go on tour with this band. I mean, I know that the internet wasn't what it was. When you asked that, there was no such thing in 91. But Nowadays, my boss would be like, you're going to get fired. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I, I guess it, it, the way it worked out, because Dave Dave's a, uh, is a music educator, right, up in, in Vermont. So the summer worked out well for him. And then, you know, I was getting those two weeks anyway. We kind of had a block time off that we knew we weren't booking any gigs in the Navy at the time. So I just tried to add two more weeks to what I was getting, you know. And uh, it turned out to be, I think, total was 28 or 29 days I I was able to get off. And the tour ended, basically, the the day that I had to come back, we had to end the horn tour the night before because I had to come back. I think we would have kept, you know, I think we ended up in in Atlanta. And our last gig was, I think we opened up for Aquarium Rescue Unit, which was a blast. And uh, that was our last gig. We could have just kept going if I had some real time. So,
0: yeah, I mean, 14 shows in 17 days is pretty intense. That's got to be a whirlwind, huh?
2: Yeah, there, there were no tour buses back then. Uh, the horn players and Fishman were driving in Fishman's mother's Dodd caravan, and the rest of the guys were in another <laughs> a conversion van, but still just great times, just unbelievable. Not only time on stage, but everything else that went along with it.
1: And I mean, at that time you're young too. So that kind of touring around, it's not, it doesn't wear on you so much. Uh, The responsibilities, even though you had a responsibility with the Navy. I remember going on tour in one of those Dodge Caravans and was just like, you know, (laughs) there was eight of us in there. It was crazy, you know, hot and everything, but the experience of it uh, alone was worth the price of admission as it were. So yeah, that's awesome to hear you talk about the Dodge Caravan. I tell my kids to stay away from those now. (laughs) (laughs)
2: well the the engine the engine actually was uh overheating so we had to crank the heat yikes and that was the summer you know we were driving down to dc i think and it was just like uh all right this is the way it is but it was all worth it once we got on stage for sure
0: so you said that you after you basically committed to doing it you all got together for a 48 hour practice rehearsal session. Can you talk a little bit about how the horn parts of this music kind of came together? Was it just something you walked in and Trey said, here, this is what you guys are going to play? Was it more of a collaborative process? Can you discuss a little bit about how that music kind of took
2: shape? Sure. Um, Yeah, Trey, along with the tapes, Trey had written a couple of tunes out. I think he had already done some uh, composing, you know, with uh, Split Open and Melt was one of them. Um, which took a little bit of time to, to learn. We certainly had to practice that just a little bit more because it wasn't as easy, but um, we were able to just basically at the, the band house just collaborate and put horn parts together. But I think knowing that um, we didn't have a lot of time, but it never seemed like we were under any kind of deadline. It, It just flowed. It was just, I mean, it was amazing. It was just like, hey, let's try this. And then they said, yeah, but what about this? And we put stuff, we just layered things together. You know, the horn guys were just scribbling our parts out. It was basically each each chart was kind of a foundation because we knew once we started playing that things could change, right? So he had a foundational horn part and this is when it comes in. And all right, but, you know, I'm, I may do this. Now, Trey didn't really have to tell us that's what was going to happen. It just happened. Right. And then on stage, it just seemed to be we had some musical ESP going on. You know, it just was like, OK, this is when we're going to come in. He just didn't look at us and nod. It was just like we knew. And uh, it just got better and better with every gig. Now, there was a lot of repeat tunes that we did on that tour because, you know, there was only so much material. And if you look back at those set lists. But, um, you know, we tried, I think, to add add things as we went along each show add another song or or something different to embellish on what we were doing
1: yeah because josh had turned me on obviously to the arrowhead ranch shows so that i i started listening to them and in particular just to name two songs from the 721 91 show i believe acdc bag and the tweezer it's like seamless it's so stylistically different than what i hear now a lot of times We talk about this and sometimes I'm like, we gotta kind of come up with a different word than call and response, like with horns. You guys are like weaving your way in and out, zigzagging through the jams. It's like ascending, descending. It's real, real high when Trey is maybe an octave lower. I mean, it's so good. I want to get a t-shirt that says, I love brass. (laughs) Because, and I turned my daughter on to it. She's like, that is really cool. And you know, for a 12 year old to say that, it it gives me all the street cred in the world. Yeah. So I, I just love what happens. I think it's just so great too. And you said there was a foundation for it and then you guys are adding on top of it. On stage, when you pull that off, what does that feel
2: like? It, well, it feels natural, the one, and uh, you know when you're, I don't know, just it just seems like you know when you're doing it right, and then you know, well, maybe we're not gonna take that chance and put that lick in so soon, because we know we haven't hit the apex yet, right? We're gonna do those background licks while Trey's taking you know, a 15 chorus solo, like when do we come in to do that? Right. And it just, it's not Dave Grippo leading. It, it's not me leading it. It's not Russell leading. it. just, we kind of felt it in a way. And there were times where, you know, maybe we went, we went a little bit too long or we came in earlier what, but it seemed like listening back to those shows, that's the way it was supposed to be written, I suppose, you know? And uh, I think that was the uniqueness of that particular horn section playing with that particular band. I think that really appreciating, because I don't listen to it a lot, you know, I turn my kids on to it and friends that like it, but you know, you don't really, it's not something I listen to all the time, but you know, looking at the internet and I'm on Instagram, that's it. That's not, I'm not on Facebook or anything. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I do uh, have a couple sites that I like to check out, you know, this day of fish history and then what you guys are doing now and but it just need to go when they, they put one of those shows up and you listen to it and you go wow that was really cool you know that was that was so much fun amen to that yeah
0: <laughs> yeah no doubt and there seems to be an intuitive nature i think for musicians in general i mean we are not musicians skinny used to play drums or congas in a couple of bands back in the early 90s i can barely hum a tune in the shower <laughs> <laughs> so I am not musical, but there seems to be, especially when you listen back to those 91 shows, there seems to be just an intuitive nature of how everybody on stage is communicating musically to each other. And some of those songs, like a song like Gumbo feels perfect with horns, like it was the way the song was always meant to be. Were there songs on that tour that didn't have quite the natural fit and you kind of had to maybe massage your parts a little bit to make it seem a little bit more
2: natural? Um, I think there were tunes that you basically had to follow, you know, the composition, David Bowie being one. I mean, that one, you know, you had to play your part. Right. And the stuff that we came up, Golgi, you know,
0: we like Golgi here on Stummy Down. I know you
2: do, man. (laughs) I know Uh, (laughs) a lot. (laughs) I love hearing it, man. It's like, you know, you hear it and it's I can just always sing that horn parts in my head when I hear fish plates, tunes that the horns used to play with them. But, um, yeah, you know, they just it seems second nature now. But back then it was like, okay, because these are compositions. They're just not a regular A.A.B.A. blues format chart or tune you know you got to pay attention where it's going so there it was important to having the music there which we needed on a couple of shows but i think after a while you, you get it under your fingers then you can embellish during the jams right but you got to be spot on because a lot of the things that we were doing were the, the guitar lines and and what page was doing on piano we were basically playing along with that uh, not only the melody but the the harmony that went underneath it so that's what i think the some of the beauty of it was and m- maybe not so much natural you de- definitely had to know where you were in the chart so
0: was there a show from that 14 night run that kind of felt like the pinnacle for you guys or one that you're like yeah this is this is where we were 100% and skinny and i've talked over our time on stummy down about how a tour evolves, how the band gets tighter, the more shows they play, you know, was, was there one that kind of stands out to you or like, this was like the pinnacle of what we, were, what we were shooting
2: for? You know, that's a really good question because as you're asking it, Josh, I really was trying to rewind the tape in my mind as it were. And I just can't put my thumb on any particular show because each one was unique in its own right. Maybe different versions of songs came off a little bit better than others, but it, they all had impact. And there were tunes that we did repeat. Obviously, I think we did Frankenstein a couple of times, and Cavern we did, you know. And obviously, Susie Greenberg, and it was just the energy from the crowd and, and the band. I mean, you know, going back to that rehearsal, that first rehearsal we did, I think maybe the first thing we played was was Susie and just to see the expression on the, the guys, you know, the expression on their face, like, okay, we're gonna be here a while, and this is gonna be great, you know, and it was just really, really cool. So that kind of set the stage as it as it were, but as far as the shows, each show was different. You know, the audience was fairly similar, I and mean, we had a lot of folks that were following us, you know, that went from, from city to city, you know, we didn't have 40,000 people, like, they do now, but it just it was a great feeling because, you know, the audience really appreciated it. So um, it really gave us a great attitude going into the shows. I will say that Battery Park was our first show and it was really neat to see the reaction of the crowd. And you knew that it was going to be something special.
0: You think it was because of the music, or do you think it was because of your tuxedos? <laughs>
2: the tuxedos, man. There's there's a great story behind it. Yeah, give us give us the
0: rundown on those tuxedos, real quick. Because it's summertime in the Northeast, July, yeah. and they put you guys in tuxedos, man. Yeah. Meanwhile, Trey's
1: over there wearing like cut off jean shorts or something. Oh yeah. And Northeast puts the H in humid, so I know it was not comfortable.
2: Yeah we. We had no idea what Paige was going to do, so we were at the band house towards the tail end of the rehearsal days there. Paige disappeared, and he came back, and he had gone to the thrift store, and he comes back with three white tuxedo jackets and three pairs of cargo pants, which were also white, and he had two vats of dye on the stove. One was purple, and one was Pink, so he ended up taking the jackets and throwing them in the pink dye, and the pants in the purple dye pots, and boiled them. And um, so, sounds comfortable. <laughs> I think, that, yeah. So anyway, the, the the jackets had a very light pink hue to them, and the pants were purple, and that's that was going to be our uniform, as it were. That's what we wore um, for 14 gigs straight, man. And I think there was maybe one day we, we were able to go get our tuxedo shirts dry cleaned or something, but the, the jackets could stand up on their own by the, by the end of the tour.
1: <laughs> oh, man, that's good stuff.
2: And I think, I think it might have been um, Townsend or maybe it was even Arrowhead, the horn, you know, Dave and Russell said, Carl, go ask Trey if we could play in shorts, you know. I guess I was the spokesman at that time. So I went in to talk to Trey, and I was like, hey, man, um, it's like 90 degrees today. Are you cool with us wearing shorts and t T-shirt? <laughs> what do you think? And he, he's like, you know, typical Trey, man. Just like the most positive individual I've ever met. He says, uh, Gears, what what's your name? I'm like, what are you talking about? I guess your name you guys are the giant country horns, man. You got to look like the giant country horn. I'm like, enough said, boss. I'm all All right, cool. So I turned around and I let Dave and Russell say, guys, suit up. That's amazing. Sorry. Yeah. So I don't know what happened to those uh, tuxedos, but when I left uh, Atlanta after the aquarium rescue unit gig, I think I left them in, in Fishman's van and, and never to be seen again. So
0: that's funny. That's a great story. So you're doing this tour with Fish, but you are in the Navy and playing music in the Navy, right? So when I think of going to see a Navy band, I'm thinking, you know, it's a bunch of olds in the audience. They're all sitting down, they listen to very patriotic music that is very structured and coordinated among you know, the orchestra or whatever band you, you happen to be a part of at that time. And then you go and you do this tour with a bunch of hippies who have an improvisational nature to their music. And it really kind of creates quite a dichotomy, at least in my mind, right? You've got the prim and proper and formal side with the Navy, but then you've got Anything but formal with fish. So, can you talk a little bit about what that experience is like comparatively between those two? You know, where you were playing, you know, music in the Navy, and then kind of switching gears and doing—no pun intended—and <laughs> playing this jam, improvisational-focused music with fish.
2: Yeah. Well, as far as the playing in the Navy band, um, I played all types of music. Within the Navy band, I was playing in a in a large jazz ensemble at that time. Um, We would play big band music at night, and then we'd play a ceremonial music during the day, like you were saying, very structured, right? John Philip Sousa type things. We do play all styles of music, whether it's rock or jazz, country music, a lot of ceremonial music. But it is structured. Uh, I think you said the other day it's like movie Heartbreak Ridge. Like you guys can you guys can
1: play like tie a yellow ribbon, Battle hymn of the Republic, and then you can also probably play Elvis or whatever you want.
2: Right. You know. What right.
1: I mean? <laughs> you know. You, you guys can do it all, which I didn't know. I thought that you could only play like certain staged things that the Navy obviously would want you to play.
2: The opportunity to play with great musicians in the Navy, everybody that you are playing with, that you're stationed with they're they're all fantastic musicians. We all share the same talent base, I suppose. Yes, there's certain music you're gonna have to play. You're gonna have to play ceremonial music. You're gonna have to play in different situations. it would be at a parade, a funeral, but a public concert for just the general public. So just basically knowing your audience, what are you there for? What is the public paying your salary for? To promote esprit de corps. There's no better job personally serving your country and being able to play music in an unbelievable band, as it were. So, at the time that I started with Fish, I was just a player in the band. You know, when I ended up my Navy career, I was the director. So, I was basically putting out those set lists and figuring out what jobs we were going to play and who we were playing for, that type of thing. So, going from what I was doing at the time with the Navy, going to play with Fish, obviously, it's just a different setting. You obviously have a lot more opportunity to fill out a song, to play the jam. The crowds were different from who would come see us at a summer concert in the Navy band as opposed to you know, Arrowhead Ranch. Different crowd. How they were dressed. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> uh. But obviously, the looseness, the less structure that you experienced playing with fish because you just filled up the time with what was going to happen. And you really had no plan other than the tunes that we knew a set list was coming. We knew we were going to play these tunes, but you didn't know what version you were going to play, which was beautiful. And, and it just, there was no, there was no restriction there other than, Hey, this is a two hour concert and we have, we have a curfew or something like that. Right. But Trey was, Driving the train, as it were, right, and leading the band. And we were able to fill up that time with some great music.
0: Well, and you, you know, you mentioned that in the Navy, you played basically all genres of music, rock, country, jazz, blues, all that stuff. Obviously, the patriotic stuff. You were interviewed on Jazz on the Tube podcast, and that w- wasn't really about Fish. It was more about your experience in the Navy and stuff like that. But Fish did come up and the interviewer asked you what fish was like and i loved your answer here you said it was kind of hard to pin down but your response was one show covers basically all genres of music with your navy experience and all of the different things there there is you know some alignment with your experience and skill set based on playing all genres of music in the navy and doing that in one show with the navy and then doing something similar with fish. Is that kind of fair to say?
2: Absolutely. I think the idea of knowing you're going to go in with a sk- certain skill sets as far as your improvisational capabilities, you're going to need that. I think that's maybe why the, the horn players in that particular horn section, why we gelled so well. I think everybody could hold their own.
0: And then you have confidence in the guys that are playing with you, right? Yeah. You know, then there's there becomes that kind of unspoken intuitive nature about how you're playing together, and I, I have a feeling that that's something that most musicians feel
2: once they're in the music. Absolutely. We certainly had a lot more freedom. We definitely fed off each other, as far as the horns. Just three of us, but still there's three different musical voices, and... I think just collaboratively with the band, we all got along so well. And I think it just it allowed us to take chances and which turned out to be just something great.
1: Well, and that's awesome because I know that you have something great going on right now, which is room full of blues. I'm gonna ask you to talk a little bit about that. It seems like your your career, which is what we love about this interview already. I mean, I know I do. I can't speak for Josh. Can I speak for you on this one? Like yeah. Sure. Right now you can. <laughs> All right, great. Roomful of Blues is what you're involved in now, you're touring now. Just talk a little bit about what that is. I'm not a big blues fan, which is crazy, but you know, looking at that stuff and seeing what you're doing and then seeing the all-encompassing nature of what's being put out by Roomful of Blues as far as music, I, I want you to talk about that because we start doing research about other bands and I'm like, oh my God, they have a discography and they've put out all these albums, and you would never know that without doing a little bit of research, which I know Josh did too. But just talk a little bit about what you're doing now, because that's really important too. I think.
2: Yeah, thanks, and thanks for mentioning Roomful. What a great band! What a great group of guys in the band. They've been around for a long time. Obviously, a, a, a turnstile of musicians has coming in and out of the group, but uh, there are a couple of guys that have been there quite a long time. Uh, Rich Latai is one of the founding members and Saxophonist, and he's been with the band over 50 years. You know, I think he joined when he was 17 and he's 68 now or 69, probably in the best shape of all of us. Just incredible player. Chris Vachon is uh, our musical director, has been playing guitar with the band since 1990. Phenomenal musician. We got John Turner on bass, who uh, used to play with Jay Giles back in the day, just a heavy hitter. Chris Anzalone, who's on drums, who just, I think he's up for an award for Session Musician of the Year in Boston. The guy plays with everyone. Wow. Yeah. Phil Pemberton, an incredible vocalist, has been with the band a little over 10 years.
0: He's got a little bit of a kind of a Harry Connick feel on on some of those tunes I listened to on In a Room Full of Blues. Yeah. Um, That was something my wife and I both kind of picked up on, that he has
2: that kind of soulful, incredible, incredible voice. Oh, he's so talented. Rusty Scott on keys. Actually, another New Jersey guy uh, came to find out one of my first gigs, The Roomful. And, you know, he's like, hey, man, where are you from? And he ended up
1: surrounded. He
2: grew up right across the Passaic <laughs> River from me in, in, in Watchung. So we
1: are
0: everywhere, Carl. We are everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah Rusty, great keyboardist. And then we have Alec Rasden, who. Uh, other than me, he's the newest member of the group. He's been with the group just a couple of years. He's uh, he's bringing down the age average. Uh, so I think he's 28 or 29. The rest of us are a lot older than that. But Alec is just an incredible player, and he plays all genres and uh, just an incredible uh, asset to the group. And then we have a, our tour manager and, and sound guy, Brian Gilletley, who's – uh, he's, he's just the ninth member of the group, you know, he's back there making sure everybody sounds the way they're supposed to and bringing up the solos when, you know, just and, and just great on the road with us. So the band's a lot of fun. They have a certain following, you know, just uh, either you like them or you love them. That's the way I look at it, because you, when you're at a concert, people really get into it. But the the folks that come see us have been seeing the band for years, you know, and so they have a really good following. So it's just a joy to play with these folks.
0: Yeah. And a band that's been around for 50 years is going to have probably a pretty expansive catalog, right? So, I mean, do you get a lot of diversity in those sets from show to show? I mean, you guys played a show last night. Will that set be different the next time you guys take the stage or kind of how does that work as far as coming up with what you're going to play each night?
2: Uh, Well, you know, we kind of stick to the same format. We do uh, mix in a couple of different tunes and swap out. But for the most part, it depends on what the gig calls for. A lot of times it's a 90 minute show to include an encore, you know, because you're playing at a venue that needs to get you out at a certain time. And then there are times where we will go ahead and have a, an intermission, you know, we'll sell merchandise or whatever. And that's that's kind of what the venue wants us to do. So we can mix it up. There's just so much material there. We have definitely have the capabilities of doing that. We're getting, actually, we're ramping up for uh, the Legendary Rhythm and Blues Cruise out of Fort Lauderdale. It's sold out, so it's, it's a lot. Of, a lot of blues acts are going to be. they you know, just like a jam cruise, right? I don't know if you you guys been on one of those, but uh, or for obviously I haven't. But I've heard, yeah, yeah, yeah. Same thing, for, but with blues. And there's check out the website. Legendary uh, Rhythm and Blues Cruise out of Florida, but it's it, it'll be my first one. And uh, the last cruise I took, uh, I, it was a big great. <laughs> A Navy ship, so it's going to be a lot different. <laughs> uh,
1: so, accommodations are a little bit nicer. Yeah, well,
2: I don't know about that. Uh, we'll see. We'll, uh, we'll see. Um, food. <laughs> although, my last cruise in the Navy, I was stationed out in Japan. So, everywhere we went was just amazing. Uh, I think we went to 20 different countries. Anyway, that's uh, so we're doing that with room full just because on the blues cruise, each act has three gigs within the seven days. So you're, you're featured on three different concerts, I guess. We're trying to mix it up. There's just so much material out there that we can do. And incredible musicians. So if Chris, our guitarist says, hey, we're gonna do this, a couple days to listen to it, we'll run it down at soundcheck and we'll play it that night, so.
0: That's cool. So I, I do have one additional question about, it could be about Roomful, but it could be kind of just in general. And this one was sent in from one of our biggest fans, my wife, Megan. As we were listening to In a Room Full of Blues, she's listening, she's loving the trumpet lines and just the general feel of the music. And she
2: goes, Does Carl sing? <laughs> I definitely do not sing with Room Full. I, I think we did some shouts uh, on She's Too Much. One of the tunes on on the album, we did that in the studio, but it's just basically great
0: trumpet solo on that. She's uh, too much, yeah. I really like that part. Oh,
2: thank thank you. That was that was a great recording session because I think maybe we did a couple of tunes twice, maybe three times, but most of them are just first cuts. So it's great when you can do that. A lot of material. I think it was over thirteen cuts that we ended up doing, but. Yeah, I appreciate that. I don't uh, really sing professionally unless uh, somebody gets sick, but definitely not with Roomful. Uh, One
0: last question kind of geared towards maybe your experience with Roomful, but just overall. Do you play any other, or can you play any other horns aside from trumpet? No,
2: not really. Trumpet is pretty much it. I play flugelhorn, but that's basically the same thing. It's a little bit different mouthpiece and it's a lot darker, more mellow. Why is that?
1: I mean, I have no idea. Why doesn't brass translate like that? Is it just because of the mouthpiece or is it because of the oh my God, am I going to say buttons? (laughs) (laughs) The valves? Is that right? (laughs) Yeah. I said buttons. That's going to be, that's going to go over really good.
2: (laughs) No, it's, you know, trumpet and flughorn interchangeable. Obviously A, a lot of trumpet players have a flugelhorn and they they use them you know, jazz settings i prefer it if i'm playing a jazz gig only it's a little bit more mellower you can't overpower it like trumpet you can get pretty loud with it flugelhorn you basically have to lay back a little bit but i love the sound of it i do play a flugelhorn during the uh, roomful set we actually have uh, an instrumental feature usually depending on how much time we have so uh, we'll throw different jazz tunes in there and i'll usually take the flugelhorn horn out and play that. That's awesome. But There's a lot of great trumpet players, uh, brass folks out there that can play everything. And they they do it. They play trombone and trumpet. And I marvel at listening to them, you know, their abilities. But but I pretty much just stick to trumpet.
1: Yeah, I have a hard time covering a lot of ground. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I get at one thing and then I feel like that's it. (laughs) So Carl, we
0: want to talk a little bit about your musical career in the Navy. First of all, thank you for your service to our country. Um, but can you discuss just a little bit about your various roles, maybe your various ranks and different positions that you held over the course of your career in the Navy playing music?
2: Sure. Uh, well, I I joined and went from boot camp to music school, which is uh, Navy and Army and Marine Corps, tri-service school at the time. Basically, you go to school for six months after boot camp, and then you get stationed in a particular Navy band. I went to Charleston, South Carolina for my first band and I was there for about three years and I was just a performer, you know, just a trumpet player in the, in the bands. Then I went to Newport up here in Newport. I did three years and that's the time that I toured with fish. And then I went back to school, basically about another six months of training to be a leader of small groups. After that, I went to New Orleans and was stationed there for three years and then we went out to Italy for three years. The time I was in New Orleans, I was leading some small groups. I was actually uh, the drum major for the parade band, you know, the guy with the mace out in front and, you know, which was kind of cool because you didn't, I didn't have to beat up my chops playing trumpet for a three hour parade. It was That was a great uh, experience. And then uh, went out to Italy and uh, continued to lead some groups out there. We were autonomous, you know, we were a big band. Uh, there was an officer in charge. I was still enlisted, but what the groups entail is they have a an enlisted leader of a particular group, and I was uh, fortunate enough to lead an 18-piece big band. We went out to sea. We were on a ship, and then we flew places. This is all before 9-11, so this is like the mid-'90s. So the ability to, to travel without the, the restrictions, and we, we hit a lot of countries and did some really amazing stuff. So that was a lot of fun, played with some Unbelievable musicians, then came back to Virginia, back to school, and they actually stood up a course and we were in the pilot version and it's called the arrangers course, so to figure out how to actually write music instead of just play it and complain in the back, saying this is a terrible chart, you know, somebody needs to write a new one. And they said, well, why don't you do it? So well, I don't know how and they sent us back to school for that.
1: Sounds like uh, scheduling meetings at my school that I work at. Uh-huh. Everybody complains about it, but nobody knows. Yeah. You know,
2: yeah. What to do. <laughs> but that really helped me grow as a musician, that time there. And then I ended up staying on staff at the school. I became an instructor. I was uh, then promoted along the way, uh, these other places that I've been stationed, and was able to get selected to be a chief petty officer in the Navy. Probably I look back, one of the promotions I'm most proud of, being able to be a part of the, what they call the chief's mess. Very unique to the American military is the Navy chief's mess, an incredible fraternity of folks and leaders. So I was a chief for about a year, and I put in a package to be an officer. Lucky enough, I was selected and became a band officer. So the next tour that I had, I left Virginia Beach and went over right next door to Norfolk, and I was uh, the second officer at uh, the Atlantic Fleet Band, which became the Fleet Forces Band, which is uh, our Navy's biggest fleet band. I think we had over 60 people. Wow! So my duties had changed at the, that point. I was not playing trumpet in the band. I was conducting and administrating, and but was able to go out with some groups. And from time to time, I'd pull out the horn and play with the band. So it was a lot of fun.
0: I don't know. Are you, are you a Seinfeld fan? You're Yeah. You're, so you're like the <laughs> maestro.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Bob Cobb, who was the director of the Policeman's Benevolent Association Orchestra, you're our maestro.
2: (laughs) Right on. Yeah.
1: I think he was like, is his name Bob Cobb? He's like, who
2: is that? It's the
1: maestro. Uh,
0: He prefers to be called the maestro.
2: (laughs) Uh, That's so funny. Never that presumptuous. uh, uh, (laughs) Those were my duties there. and, and I ended up leaving, was there for about three years and then went out to japan and was the uh, the bandmaster out there had a great tour in japan and like i said we we saw a bunch of different countries and worked for a three-star admiral who was the leader of the seven, uh, united states navy seventh fleet so had a great admiral out there who believed in our mission as what the band could do you know to promote what we were out there for he used to say i'll never forget it he said carl i can put you meaning the band he goes i can put the band where i can't put ships he put his money where his mouth is because that's what we did and we played in some incredible places that we were the only americans those folks saw the only navy so that's kind of what we did and that's what navy bands do not only abroad but here in the states as well you know
0: yeah i was going to ask you typically when people think of serving your country they think of standing a post or Taking a hill or, you know, some of those things. What was it like for you to serve your country through music? I mean, that's a very unique way to do it. And, you know, you mentioned that some of the stuff was before 9-11, but what about afterwards? And not to, you know, take a dour turn here, but obviously there's Morale and things like that, that are very, very important when it comes to America's fighting force. But what was it like for you to serve your country through music?
2: Uh, It was incredibly rewarding, Josh. Just really was. And the bands, they continue to do that mission, you know, through COVID, what they were able to do with the talent that they had, you know, to be able to. And I don't know if I could have done this as, as a leader. Always the greatest ideas come from the folks that you work with, right? So, cultivating those great ideas and saying, you know what, this is a great idea, let's do this. And uh, I think that's that had a lot to do with my success in the Navy. Instilling that kind of empowerment with, with your folks, but not, not to get off on that tangent, but just seeing what they're doing now and able to still provide that type of customer service without playing live for folks, right? But still adding to what the mission is. Just a lot of pride in, in what the bands do and obviously what I did with the bands back in the day. Every four years when it was time to re-enlist, I didn't know what I was going to do, you know, but I think maybe about halfway through my 30-year career, it was like, this is a great deal for me and my family. Incredible opportunity and the people that you served with. As I got towards the end of my career, seeing the folks that came in, the very, very patriotic, incredible musicians. but just incredible people, too. Knowing that uh, you had a chance to serve with folks like that was just extremely rewarding.
1: Yeah. And I'll reiterate again like, thank you for that. I mean, that's people is always seems to be a huge part of it. Community, people. And what you were saying, too, is like as a teacher, having to deal with that during COVID and still putting product out there is something that we loved about what Fish did, putting out dinner in a movie and, you know, the beacon jams and, so all that kind of stuff, you know, it's strangely similar, you know, what people are, have gratitude for and, and music is definitely one of those things. And I, and I know Josh does too, have a lot of gratitude for that type of thought, you know, that mentality, because I think it's lost on a lot of us, <laughs> absurdly so somehow in, in all that we've had to deal with, especially in the last year. Well, and I think it also speaks to the power of music, right?
0: We were all dealing collectively with the same thing, but music was maybe an anchor to windward for some of us. And that's why this podcast got started was because we had that deficit in being able to go see shows, but music is such a strong component of who Skinny and I both are and having that connection and being able to watch, you know, old shows or have that collective feeling through music and it sounds like that's something that existed for you in this you know that was the one constant was the music you know whether you were in the states or if you were abroad playing for fish or playing for the navy band or whoever it's this connection and that's one of the things that skinny and i constantly talk about here on Stub Me Down, Carl, is what is it about the live music experience that has that magic that keeps us coming back, that keeps us connected to it? And we look at it from the consumer perspective, really. We, we listen to as much as we can. You have it from obviously that consumer side, but then also that creative side. I'm sure that there are a lot of reasons why music has such a strong pull for you. For us it's it's hard for us to really put a specific definition or label on it because there are so many different layers and meanings that we derive from either just simply listening to a show in the car or going to a show or learning about something new and it's exciting and you know one of the things that skinny and I were talking about offline was we know Golgi and Susie Greenberg and Divided Sky and all of these songs that we have come to know and love over 25 years of listening to Fish, right? But listening to them with the interpretation of the horns, it was like, yeah, these songs are all 30 years old or these versions are 30 years old, you know, going back to the horns tour, but it was almost new and refreshing, breathing a different life into these tunes that we've known for so long. And there was just something so exciting about that. And that was one of the, the main reasons like having you on to talk about that, not only from the consumer perspective, but from the producing music perspective. Um, and obviously, it's been such a, a huge part of your professional life. But I got to believe that that bleeds into pretty much all aspects of your life.
2: Oh, my God, man. Absolutely. Being a player and going to shows or music is, it's the constant.
0: Amen to that. All right, so Carl is actually going to be stubbing us down. So Carl has chosen a show that he is going to stub Skinny and Me Down on. If you are new to Stub Me Down, the premise of the show is that over the course of our friendship and prior to that, Skinny and I have collected countless ticket stubs from concerts we've been to together separately. What we do is we select a ticket stub from that stack of concerts, and we use that as a jumping off point to talk about the music, our friendship, the funny thing that happen along the way. So Carl is going to be pulling a stub and stubbing us down today. So Carl, are you ready to stub me and Skinny down? Absolutely. All right. Why don't you go ahead and tell us what show you've chosen for us today, man?
2: Okay. I actually chose a show that I played on it was way back in 1998 112198 at the Hampton Coliseum
0: Uh, The mothership. I've been there many times. Great venue. I was actually supposed to be at that weekend run of shows, but my oldest brother ended up getting married that weekend. So I've just about gotten over being upset at him for that one. But these were a couple of great nights. Fish actually released both of these shows just about a year later as the Hampton Comes Alive box set. Interestingly it's it's weird to think about this now because every show that fish plays is available somewhere whether it's on ReListen or if you have the Live Fish app you can get the soundboards of each of their shows but back in the day you know, they had a couple of live recordings that they had issued. A live one was a compilation of a bunch of different shows and versions. But this box set was really the first time the band had released in its entirety a couple of shows. So very cool that this show was chosen for that. Another kind of unique thing about this run of shows was the number of covers that they played over those two nights. They played out of 44 songs that the band played in In those two days, 20 of them were covers. And that's a mix of covers that Fish has built into their repertoire and then some one-offs the first night they played getting jiggy with it. We'll talk a little bit about some of those things in the second night. But so were you already planning on attending these shows, or did the band call you up and say, Hey, we're gonna be in Hampton, come and play with us? You know, can you talk a little bit about how you basically got into the building for those couple of nights?
2: Yeah, um, well, I think this is before cell phones, right? Skinny? Maybe. like
1: (laughs) I love how you're asking me (laughs) because, I mean, I didn't have one. I used to borrow Josh's all the time.
2: Yeah, I don't remember. I I knew they they were coming and either I called Paige on, on the landline, as it were, or he called me, I forget, just to set up because I lived in the area anytime they were down in Virginia. I would go see them. So I would always bring my horn in the car, whether I was going to play or not. It's always there, right? So for the first night on the 20th, I left my horn in the car. Trey's like, yeah, man, go grab your horn. So that's kind of how it works. <laughs> right. So <laughs> right. <laughs> I was, uh, I went and grabbed my horn, and, and he's like, can you come on the encore? And how about we do Cavern?" I'm like, okay, cool. So cavern, obviously, I, I played that a few times before then. So after that night, you know, we were hanging out after the show, and Trey's like, "Yeah, are you coming tomorrow night?" Right? And I'm like, "Yeah, I'll come tomorrow night." And he said, uh, "Yeah, we'll bring your horn." I said, "Okay, great." So that that's how that all worked out.
1: And backstage is something that I I worked as like a backstage crew setting up and and breaking down years ago for a local HF festival. It was a Washington DC located radio station and kind of know what that's about, but not as like a musician or a player or even as a fan or somebody that's close to the band. And I know it was a lot different than it is now. What's that? like are you on the floor watching the show and then go back are you on the backstage kind of hanging out watching it from there and what's the difference back then as opposed to probably now because i know that things have changed dramatically as far as access to backstage
2: yeah i mean it there was a lot of family back there you know there always is you know a little bit more busy back then i guess you know when they came back after they took a pause and they came back, maybe a little bit different business model, you know, a little bit more restricted. As I remember it, it was like any other show, I suppose. You know, it spent that's what I'm used to when I go see them, that's my kind of hang out. So right. However, you know, you got the all access pass. So you're I definitely want to catch what's going on out on the floor, you know, because that's completely different from what you hear. On stage, right, or backstage, you, know, you hear that mix. Do you, you hear a different mix because it's the mix for the musicians, and you know, not so much what you folks are hearing out front. So.
0: Yeah, I didn't even think about the difference in actually what you're hearing, right? I, you know, I would just figure if you're standing on the side of the stage, like it sounds the same there as it does because you're in the arena and it just sounds that's actually pretty interesting that there's, you're hearing the musician's feed.
2: Right. It was pretty live sound. I mean, you could hear the whole mix, right? But just the visual, obviously being back there and then being able to see the audience, from that perspective and just, you know, people watching and everybody having a great time and to be out on the floor or somewhere else that you can experience that light show. Right. I mean, yeah, wow. So that's such a big part of their presentation. In my opinion, it's almost like if you listen to a show and you hear the crowd react to something that maybe wasn't a musical reaction, it was something that Chris was doing on lights, you know? So I talk to people that haven't seen fish. You gotta go see the show. That's what it's all about. And then you'll have an appreciation for the music later, you know, if you want to hear it again, right? I mean, you, but to see it in the presentation and everything that, it, you know, because it's, it's such a big part of their product, right, is is the visual too, so.
0: It really is a delight of the senses, you know, when you're- Oh, man, yeah. When you're talking about the light show, how it lines up with the music and- Yeah. I mean, Karota's a Jedi, there's no doubt about it. <laughs> The things that he does. Speaking of being a Jedi, actually, the last time you played with Fish <laughs> formally was at Intelos Pavilion in Portsmouth, which was yeah the infamous Tuck Show. And Trey grabbed a lightsaber that somebody had in the front row and started <laughs> doing some Jedi shit with the lightsaber instead of his guitar. Yeah. I, and you played party time actually at that show, um, which was really cool. I was actually there, was so excited great venue too but so excited to have you come out and i I, you came out and played party time there right that was
2: yeah that was fun man that was a lot of fun i didn't know the song trey's like was one of those gigs i just showed up to watch the band he's like you go grab your horn so it was i knew it was going to be a special (laughs) night but i had no idea what we were going to do he said yeah how about we do party time do you know it i'm like um no i don't so i (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I forget how it was either on my phone or something, you know, and I'm listening, but he's like, let's go back, you know, let's go into Mailware's Page's dressing room. And I think that Fishman's kids, like little kids, man, and they were sleeping. So I had a mute that I put in the in the horn and Trey just had his guitar, no amp and then Page on key. So the three of us, he's like, okay, this is how it goes. And here's the lick. And I'm like, okay, all right. Yeah. And then we just kind of noodled a little bit and then... I came out when I came out and it was really neat. Yeah. A lot of fun.
0: That's fun. Yeah. That was
1: a, that was a great weekend. Yeah. All right. You want to get into uh, the set here a little bit skin? Yeah, I do. I'm excited to hear what Carl thinks of this. Cause there's probably something that I don't like. <laughs> 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 so from 11, 21, 1998 at Hampton Coliseum in Hampton, Virginia, one of my favorite places in all the world. Set one starts with a Wilson, Big Black Furry Creature from Mars, Lawn Boy, Divided Sky, Cry Baby Cry, Boogie on Reggae Woman, Nick You, Dog Stole Things, Nellie Kane, Foam, Waiting in the Velvet Sea, Gaiuti, and then finally Bold as Love because I'm about to run out of breath. I mean, it's a long first set, 13 songs. Now, not a lot of depth here, JW, like not a lot of songs that are played over 10 minutes. I think only... Maybe three, right? Yeah, three songs over 10 minutes. Divided Sky and, and Gaiuti is just two. Oh, no, Foam. No, Foam, Well just over. But I, I really love the opening. I love a Wilson opener. And this one has a, a very dirty bass line at about five minutes. It's really, really good. And I love Wilson when they open because the crowd gets into it right away. And I think that crowd participation is something that we talk about a lot when it comes to experience and Carl, we've talked about this on previous episodes a lot, that, that crowd participation is something that as a fan, we love and I, I wonder from your perspective as a musician when you know that the crowd knows what's going on, how does that also translate to the musician seeing that? Because you just mentioned that as far as just being on stage, but when you're playing the actual music how does that translate in your eyes, your experience, your mind, like what you're seeing the fans doing?
2: Well, it's it's not unique to that band, to Fish, but it's certainly more so than any other band out there, in my opinion, It's how knowledgeable the fans are. And as the years went along, just how much the fans know. So how does that affect you on stage? It's, well, it's incredible. They're a part of what you're doing, basically.
1: Yeah, do you ever feel like they're another instrument? I know that's a weird thing to say, but like with Fish, I do feel that. Like with the Grateful Dead, sometimes with lyrics, But with fish, it seems like with the coded language and the secret nods, that in the overall experience, it's almost like the fan is part of the actual process.
2: Yeah, the the whole vibe, you know, it's the whole vibe thing, Skinny, like when you're up there, you feel it. Whether it was 1991 or 2012, you feel it. It puts you in another gear that you don't even know you had sometimes, right? Very cool. Wow, that's livid.
1: Yeah, I mean that that's amazing. That's livid. That makes it real for me. I mean,
2: don't you feel that? Don't you feel that in the audience? I I mean,
1: we do. Josh, I don't know. You can speak to this too. Like I feel sometimes this is really funny. Like I think Trey is looking at me. <laughs> like if, if I was in a spot where subconsciously we did have that ESP, he's not. But what I'm saying is like you feel that way. So as a fan, yeah i'm all about that but i think my wonder is after like thinking about the show or what a good time i had last night i'm like i wonder what they were actually saying and thinking about what we were doing or reacting to you know what i mean like or is it just like ah tomorrow's another night I mean, I look at it, Skinny, you're talking about our
0: role in the music, a song like Wilson. Now, I don't know if in 91, the crowd was doing the Wilson chant. No, they weren't. I don't think weren't. it was around quite yet. I don't think it was the crowd doing the clap, the three claps in stash. You know, I don't know if those things had quite developed maybe in 91 to the point that they are now the crowd chanting hood I mean that makes us active participants in that particular version of the song I know obviously the band knows that we're clapping or chanting or doing some sort of call and response with them so I do feel like they need our participation in some of those things and i mean the band plays chess with the audience and they do all of these engaging things that are based on interacting with the fans they're not just getting up there and you know running through a song and then you know moving on to the next one there is that direct connective tissue to the crowd that they bring forth through a Wilson, a Stash, a Harry Hood. You know, those songs that have, you know, Bathtub Gin, where we are a necessary part of the song at this point. And, you know, Carl, like you said, feeding off of that energy on stage, this again is something that Skinny and I have talked about on Stummy Down a lot, is it's that circular nature of the energy. The band feeding off the crowd, the crowd feeding off the band, and it just kind of becomes this gigantic ball of energy that's kind of bouncing all around the room no pun intended and i didn't write that down (laughs) sure you didn't (laughs) but it is and i think that that's one thing that maybe is a little bit different about fish even from the grateful dead you know there are no crowd participation in grateful dead sets and so that that does i think generate that connection and cultivate that connection with the crowd and the band. And then you take a look got a 15 minute divided sky here. We talk about divided sky a lot on stubby down it seems to show up in a lot of concerts that we've we've talked about. And then you get to the cry baby cry which was not something that Fish had played. It was a bust out from the last time they had played it before this show was in 1995 at Walnut Creek, 278 shows. So you've got, here's Divided Sky, a song they play all the time, then boom, here's a Beatles cover that they hadn't played in three years and almost 300 shows. Now some magic reaching back has kind of been sprinkled in a little bit too.
1: Two things I want to say. One, I'm glad you skipped over Big Black Furry Creature from Mars. <laughs> and two, the crybaby cry for me is really interesting because I think Fish does this a lot with covers. They will play a song I haven't thought, I'm now I'm chasing this. I said last season I wasn't chasing anything. I really hope that they bring that back. And maybe they will because they're doing the you know, Beatles documentary, everybody's talking about it, but this was a song I had totally forgotten about as far as like Beatles catalog. It's a great drop in. How it sounded at Hampton, I'm sure it was glorious. And they've only played
0: it once since 98 they played it in 2016 at bill graham so it has not been something you know so it it appeared more frequently prior to 98 and then we're only talking about two versions including this show since then so i mean that's maybe that
1: does maybe that is something that makes a makes a reappearance like it the old is new for me all the time with fish and it's because they have so much I, i had no idea that they covered that and that was great it was really good hint hint fish if you're if you're thinking about anything that you want to play that you haven't played in a while up at the garden, be my guest. <laughs> uh, Carl, are there any
0: covers that Fish doesn't play that you would like to see them
2: work through? Or it's probably not a good question because if I mention anything, it'll end up being something they've already done. Maybe a roomful song. I don't know. Uh,
0: That's a great answer.
2: I think Josh, you and I may have talked about this. I know Paige reminded me of this. They played in Providence in 2019 and I actually had a room full gig that night. So I just went to soundcheck to hang out and and then I had to go to my gig. So I was in Providence and I was telling Paige, hey, you know, I'm playing with room full of blues now. And he starts laughing. He goes, man, we used to open up for them. He was telling me the story about the leader of the group refusing to go on stage because uh, until they got paid, you know, one of those deals. So. It was funny. The other thing is, Paige did. Um, he and I actually did a, a interview this past summer, which I didn't share with you in our hometown newspaper. Just as an aside, someday you know, but we because we played a gig in Basking Ridge, and they did this front page thing on me and Paige, separate separate articles, but all kind of talking about the same thing.
0: That was at the Ross Farm. Is that is that the gig you're talking about? Yeah, yeah,
2: the Ross Farm gig.
0: I saw some video on that on YouTube, so I watched. Oh, really? Yeah, I watched some of that. I mean, it's like they set up a stage in like somebody's front yard there.
2: Yeah, well, they—they actually a friend of Paige's older brother Steve used to be the town administrator. He retired. He's part of this music committee, and they actually get some really good acts in there. But and it was all—it's all donation, you know. So they didn't really have a budget for us. But they came up and they, they actually sold tickets because you can go there for free, bring your lawn chair. It's really a nice place to go see music. You know, they started built this thing up and then they get, the editor of the newspaper had given me a call and wanted to do this article about it. And he's like, is there any way you think you could get a quote from Paige? So I texted Paige and told him what was going on. And he says, what's the guy's number? So instead of just giving a quote, Paige was going to actually talk to him on the phone, which is awesome of them to do that it was a nice article and page went over the top saying nice things about me. So I, I, I definitely owe him a a beverage or something, but, uh, it it was
1: really cool. Speaking of covers, they go into boogie on reggae woman, um, which I love. And it's a really short romp through here, Josh, and then a Nick you, but my favorite song probably of the set is that dog stole things. I really love that song. And uh, another short, four-minute romp through that, but really tight. I just like the way that that song sounds to my ears. I know we've talked a lot about that too. I don't know what you thought about the first set so far. It's all really quick. And again, we've talked about this idea about stacking the deck. Quick run-throughs, but well-played. Uh, that I felt like that Dog Stole thing was really well-played, even though short, and which is what Fish does to you. It kind of puts that little twist to uh like we might play 13 songs so we're gonna play them this way and we're gonna play them this length and you know this timing of it and this is how it's gonna go and that's that so this show doesn't really have that monster 20
0: minute beast 30 minute beast but you know, you've got that 15 minute divided sky. You've got the Crybaby Cry bust out. The Nelly Kane that came after Dog Stole Things, also another bust out. They hadn't played that in 293 shows going back to 94. So here, now Nelly Kane is something that you're going to see quite frequently in the 3.0 slash 4.0 era. Whereas back in the day, you weren't seeing that as much so that I, I think that makes this set a little bit unique even though there isn't that monster jam then they have the velvet sea guy ut bold as love another cover that they closed the set with
2: it's, you know very musically appealing that first set in my opinion i listened to it a couple of days ago through the whole show just the programming and how one thing went to the other like skinny was saying about the, the lack of length of tunes however when you're going from one idea to the next or from one song to the next it's really good programming you know it's not like hey i'm bored i want to go get something from the concession stand they're keeping you on your your toes right yeah
0: definitely engaging for sure
1: yeah i agree i'm I'm totally engaged probably because as a fan i want to see what they're going to do next because they are shorter lengths now it's not like i'm paying attention to the timing of anything when i'm at the show sometimes their tempo uh, and how they create or stack or maybe only do five song first sets or second sets i always find interesting about them and this is interesting in the fact that it's 13 songs they play them all really well and they just go pip, 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 pip. and it's it's a long set i mean the gaiuti the is really well played too like everything that they do i'm always like it's really well played <laughs> <laughs> but the Gaiuti, I love that song and it's really well. And then a Jimi Hendrix cover to close. You know, I, I feel like the length of songs is something that is the mood of where Fish fans are right now. And I, I, I like the set, there's, there's some ones I don't like in there.
0: Carl, when you were doing the 91 tour, as fans, we always say, are they writing the set list before the show? Do they deviate once the show starts? There's been some tours where Trey has made a point to say we've been playing without set lists and just playing whatever we want up here. On the 91 tour, before each at soundcheck or whatever, were they saying, all right, this is it, this is the set list. we're gonna play this, and then was there deviation from that? Or was it, especially with the horns, they wanted to keep it pretty structured there? Or can you talk a little bit about about how that worked?
2: Yeah, so this is probably after soundcheck. Uh, we were just hanging out backstage or whatever and, and Trey would get some notebook paper and he would write the set list. He would put three identical set lists on one sheet or two and two, but he, he, I just remember him cutting it up and each horn player would get, here's the set list, right? And what I did, and I, I, of course, I don't have them anymore, I should, but I saved every one during the tour probably
0: in the pocket of your tuxedo jacket
2: <laughs> oh, right yeah well <laughs> the the ink would have run uh, because it we were sweating so much on that those dang coats. The dye from the pink jacket would bleed through the shirt and I had pink skin I mean for a while after the tour I'm not kidding but um, so Trey would write it out and that that was our that was our blueprint that's what we had for the show. I think rarely did anything deviate from the set list as I remember it. There were things that we we just needed to be prepared because a lot of the stuff music was written for. So he knew that we couldn't be scrambling in the book or, or the way we had our own music set up. They're not gonna wait for you, right? We're going right into the next song. So we were prepared for that. So yeah, it was neat because every, it seemed to be uh, ceremonial at the time. He would write it out, you know, right in front of us and cut it up and give each, each of us a sheet. And I had saved all of those and I don't know where they are now, but. <laughs>
1: That's awesome story. And I'm going to rip off that word from you, which I'm inclined to do, which is ceremonial. <laughs> <laughs> Let me uh, run down that first set fish from the Hampton Coliseum, 1121, 1998. Started off with uh, Wilson, Big Black Furry Creature from Mars, Lawn Boy, Divided Sky, Cry Baby Cry, Boogie on Reggae Woman, Nick You, Dog Stole Things, Nellie Kane, Foam, Waiting in the Velvet Sea, Gaiuti, and then wrapping up the set with Bold as Love, which then takes us to set break. We haven't done anything like this, JW. I'm going to walk around the arena a little bit and talk about Foodie Kits, which is on the couchlot.com or the lot by primal soup.com. Foodie Kits has combined forces with giant country horns and has come up to Create a foodie kit based on this great cause. Carl, could you talk a little bit about that cause, just about what that's all about? Because I know that it's going towards something great.
2: Yeah, actually, uh, Russell Remington, his son went to the Ross and Saunders Institute and it made an incredible impact on that young man's life in turn with his whole family. And uh, Russell was not to say it was emotional, but it was the three of us talked together about, Hey, what would be a good charity here? It was an easy pick when Russell was speaking to it or of it. They're out of Austin, Texas, and uh, they do really, really good things. And it's just so great that Matt from foodie kids and Craig from the lot were able to, to get this thing off the ground. I actually uh, received my Jersey, Couple of weeks ago, I'm going to be proud to wear it one of these days. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, how does it
1: fit? Because I'm really scared of those things <laughs> because my midsection is uh, taking some Miller lights to the gut. So I'm kind of concerned how it fits. So, how does that thing have you tried it on?
2: It looks like it's going to be okay. I haven't tried it on yet. Both my sons are long, tall string beans, so their jerseys are going to fit great. <laughs> Uh, as well as my daughters, but uh, yeah, there's a reason they don't call me Skinny Brother. But anyway, <laughs> but what Matt what Matt said said, Carl, check out the sizing chart. It's one of those European sizing charts, so definitely you have to read that to make sure that you're you're doing the right thing.
1: Well, we're proud as anything to support that thank you so much for being a part of that. And we're so happy to be part of the lot by Primal Soup as well.
2: Have you guys seen these jerseys that come out?
1: They're all over the place. I saw them all summer long. Oh, great.
0: Yeah, we've seen them on tour. Yeah, they're all over. So we got Yeah, fantastic. We got a couple on the way. When we joined the lot, Matt hooked us up. So we're waiting for those. Hopefully we'll have have those for New Year's But if not, definitely for summer tour. So very cool. And I just love the idea of marking the 30th anniversary of the Giant Country Horns tour with a special Giant Country Horns jersey. And then certainly the opportunity to donate all those proceeds to the Ross and Saunders Institute is a great cause, noteworthy, and something very cool that foodie kits in the lot. So Now, the Giant Country Horns are going to be reuniting coming up in December, on December 30th. Do you want to just touch on that real quick?
2: Yeah. We got a call from uh, Adam Chase, who runs a couple different bands. He and his brother, Adam's wife, Mandy. Quite an enterprising family, great musicians, and great people. They actually do a band called the James Brown Dance Party. A bunch of musicians that have played within this band, uh, myself included in the past, they reached out to Dave and Russell and myself and said, hey, would you guys be interested in coming to do a fish after show on the 30th of December at Les Poissons Rouge in the city? I think the tickets are out there for sale now. And so that's going to be a lot of fun. That'll be on the 30th.
0: Yeah, we'll post that flyer on our social media just to make sure that people are aware. Cool. But very cool, 30 years after the Giant Country Horns started, you're going to have a little bit of, and re- I know you guys have played since then. I know that you've done the James Brown dance party before, but this will be very cool. You know, Skinny and I making after shows is a little bit tougher at our advanced ages and especially how we go to fish shows, but we'll definitely make an effort to to get to this one just because it'll be cool to see you live and to see the, see the giant country horns back together as well.
2: Oh, yeah. That would be great to see you guys there. You know, naps are good, Skinny, if you want like a like.
1: i I'm already fine, dude. I'm already planning. Like, it's just a, it, a month-long plan. <laughs> so I, I'm going to try to work this out. I
0: already put the word out to Megan. I'm like, oh, hey, you know, Carl's playing an after show. She's like, no, no after show. She's like, you can go. She's like, you can go by yourself. I was like... Okay. <laughs> All right, let's transition here into the second set from uh, this Hampton show on November 21st, 1998. So to open up the second set, Fish comes out and plays a Beastie Boys cover, Sabotage. Mike Song into Simple, into The Wedge, into Mango Song, into Free, into Ha Ha Ha, back into Free. They take a little bit of a break, they play wikipa groove to close the set, and then the encore, which we will get to in a couple of minutes, but the encore is another cover, a song that some of you kids might never have heard of before, but a song called Tub Thumping by the band Chippewa. So we'll get to that in just a couple of minutes, but... They open up the second set here with Sabotage by the Beastie Boys and this was only the third time they had played it. They actually played this for the first time at my first show on August 8, 1998 at Meriwether. So very cool that they do that. and they. Do a killer job on it. I mean, it's a really good version of it. They really play that well. Then they go into Mike song and Mike song and Wee Pog were things that you played pretty regularly on the Horns tour. And as I said, I, in '98, I was new to Fish and really consuming as much as I could. So when when this box set came out and I listened to it. This Mike song and the Mike's simple, I basically, from then till now, this is what Mike's song to me was supposed to sound like. Real, heavy dirty tray when he starts ripping at about five minutes almost six minutes in the groove there just starts this steady climb to the peak that hits around eight minutes and When you listen to this version of Mike's like I want to just Get on my feet and rage it because it is just so tight and powerful They don't really transition into like a type 2 jam here. They kind of save that for the simple but what a incredible version of Mike's that for me really set the stage of what I have always envisioned Mike's to sound like. So knowing this version and then kind of how you played it with them, you know, what's your impression of, you know, this kind of blasting off version of Mike's relative to, you know, Mike's song with Horns?
2: Well, I think going back and, you know, listening to the show in its entirety, this version the show was due for something like this, right? People were waiting for something like this to happen that night, at least listening to it, right? For me. That's what I got out of it. That's the feeling I got. I think at the time they were playing that, I was still backstage. We had just figured out what we were gonna do for the encore. So Tom Marsh and I were just, I think we were both hanging out backstage watching. But um, obviously the way we played it back in 91, it wasn't as extensive, right? But it's just fantastic.
0: Yeah, it's it's a great version and then just an absolutely buttery, smooth transition into that simple. Yeah. Just a very impactful segment of music there from the mics into the simple. And the simple they do take type two around the eight fifty, nine minute mark. Then they get into this kind of a little bit more laid back, blissful jam there. And I always just connected Mike's simple hydrogen week of Yeah. I really got my basis from that. From obviously, they didn't do the hydrogen right into the Wikipog. You had the wedge, Mango Song, and then the free ha 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 free before they got into the Wikipog, But. What a powerful way to get that second set rolling. And I think, like you said, they didn't have any of those big improvisational jams in the first set. Now they get into it. They get real dirty there with that mics into simple. Then they kind of dial it back, I think, a little bit there with the Wedge and Mango song. Then free, ha, ha, ha. Free, I mean, you're talking about 11, 12 minutes of music there that really has a lot of fun to it. And again, that seam from free into ha, 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 back into free, I mean, it was perfect. And my question to you, Carl, is they played Big Black Furry Creature from Mars in the first set. And the second set, they've got ha, ha, ha. These guys are weird. You know, like sometimes I listen to fish at work and if there's a song that comes on where they're doing something weird, like I turn the volume down a little bit because if somebody walks by me, they're going to be like, what the fuck is that guy (laughs) listening to? You know, so uh, what is your kind of impression of these jam-heavy shows, the fishiness, kind of the funny thing. You know, you you talk about the Intelos show where they're getting Fishman to tuck his dress into his underwear. Like, there's this silly, serious, fishy, and all of it wrapped up in this package what is your impression, your take when they do something like a Ha 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 or a Big Black Furry Creature from Mars or, or some of this kind of goofy, silly stuff that, you know, you wouldn't expect at this point when they do this stuff now, like they're a bunch of like, you know, late 50s rockers. You know, what what is your impression of that?
2: I think it's all audience participation, man. I think that's who they're playing for at the time. You know, whether it's a webcast or it's certainly for those people in that venue. Right. There's your connection and everybody appreciates it. You know,
0: not everybody skinny. No, <laughs>
1: no, I, you know, I have my own problems. <laughs> I mean,
2: well, you know what Be- back in the day we had to play big black furry creature from Mars with the horns. There was no chart written for that. So we just came up with stuff. Have you ever listened to back to some of what we did with the horns? With that, we just we were kind of shaking our heads, like, "What's going on here? What's Mike saying?" You know, like.
1: <laughs> "Yeah, well, come down and sit next to me in section 119 this New Year's, and I'm sure I'll have the same
2: conversation." <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm I'm not a complainer at all. I love everything that they do. You know, I think that the best thing about them is that there is a side of them that not everybody's gonna gain anything from and, and I think that's music in particular. I think there are some things that regardless of the genre of music you're just not you don't float to it. they're no different than anybody else uh, Josh laughs at me all the time because I <laughs> I think we're starting to find like more songs I don't like than I do but I do <laughs> love the whole second set. I mean, I would say I would chase a Sabotage right now, even though it's just like a funky Beastie Boys cover, but I would chase a Cry Baby Cry. You know, I've seen like a Ha Ha Ha. There's some stuff in here, in this entire show, that's, you know, a lot of people haven't even touched or been around or seen um, or experienced. And yeah. for me, even if I I don't really like it, I, the experience of it is enough for me. So yeah. yeah, Don't don't try to get Josh to turn against me. <laughs> i would never i would Uh, never that's funny stuff
0: um so They close the set with a -a Weekapog Groove, about a nine-minute run through this show. My wife loves this show because they played her two favorite songs. They played Boogie On Reggae Woman in the first set, and then the Weekapog Groove is her other fave. So they get this at the end. Why does she
2: like Weekapog?
0: She loves the energy. She loves the fast-paced nature of it and the way it kind of builds. This version in particular, Fishman goes absolutely berserk, and the tempo feels like it's just steadily increasing. Increasing, the longer they played this particular version. I feel like Wikipog is like that in general, but specifically here Fishman towards the last couple of minutes of this thing. Christian and I have talked about him on a lot of occasions and how octopus like he can be. And I mean, it feels like he's hitting everything in his kit all at once. She also saw, we saw an incredible version in Miami on the 2014 New Year's run and that one really stuck out to her. But prior to that, she's just, she's always loved the Mike's Groove suite of songs and Weka Pod really kind of scratches her where, where she itches and it is that full, release, you know, that jump around, dance around. Everybody's just feeling that positivity and that energy that the band is creating. And that's, I feel like, one of those cyclical things. And when that first drum beat starts, when they transition into a week from whatever they were playing before, it just generates that, like, it's hard to put to words, that excitement. It's almost like a, a culminating peak to... whole show and they save it for the very end here and that feels such like such a great bookend for this particular set um you know and wikapog 2 is another one you played extensively on the horns tour listening to wikapog with horns adds just that other layer so much so that it breathes this different life it just feels so good and unique and wikapog is one of those i think that really showcases how the horns accentuate a song like this and and for me horns are just it's happiness man it's a party when the horns come in very cool um, so then they finally, they wrap up the show, they close the second set with Weka Pog, and then we got to talk about this encore, man, Tub Thumping by Chippewamba, which as I said, I'm sure that you know some of the 4-0 kids that are out there probably have no idea what that is unless they're maybe familiar with this show in particular. But can you talk a little bit about how that song was chosen? You said Tom and you were both part of it. I know Tom sings it. How does something like this even enter into the band's consciousness when they're like, "All right, you know, let's let's do something quirky here"?
2: Well, I, have, I have no idea. I just know that um, <laughs> before the show, Trey's like, "Hey, listen, at set break, we're going to talk about what we're going to do for the encore," and that was it. So they go to first first set. I'm asking Tom, "Hey, what's going on? Like, what are we going to do?" He goes, "I think we're going to do this." the too. Tub thumping, yeah. Tub thumping, right? We're gonna do this tub thumping. And at the time, all we had was a CD and a boom box in the band practice room backstage at the Coliseum. So as soon as they were done with the first set, they came back and Trey was actually giggling before we even started. He's like, check this out. He puts it on the boom box. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, I've heard this before, but where, right? And it was just, we're just cracking up. I'm surprised we even got through the set break cause it was just so much laughter going on. And then, you know, he's like, okay, then you play here. You know, when this comes in and just be ready to come on stage after the second verse or whatever, or the second chorus. And that's the way it went. I think we pulled it off, it was pretty fun.
0: Yeah, I mean, you guys are cracking up the entire time too on stage.
2: Totally cracking up, I just I had no idea. And then I had to make up stuff like that. Obviously, you know, you don't want to step on it, and, and like play something stupid, you know, or just, just kind of try to fit, you know, but I was, it was hard not to laugh. Right. Because I was backstage when they started it and just to see the audience feel like, you know, everybody's <laughs> kind of shaking their head. Then they were all getting into it.
1: <laughs> because at the time that song, first of all, yeah, I don't know who came up with that band name, but that's probably one reason why they're not around anymore. Second, <laughs> second thing is they played like the PA like intro, which I found yeah. so fascinating that they started off with that. Like, how did they do that? Which I don't know if you're privy to, but like, you know, that's a song that after you've heard it for like the 15th time in the summer, that you're like, ah, you know, you chant like back then in the nineties, you would hit like number two or three. It's not like 98 rock. Or <laughs> like, right. uh, let's see what else is on. Right, right. And that's so funny, because I think that's part of the joke, is like, around the time, I'm sure that song was on like every three minutes, no matter what radio station you turn to.
0: It's a song that reminds us of the best times.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And the worst. Yes. (laughs) That's yeah great. you
0: you got right out front there and there's a there's a nice little trumpet solo and it's cool. We were my wife and I were listening to this a little bit earlier today, and you know I know exactly when you come in and you just feel it, you know and and oh, yeah,
2: that it was fun though. It was a lot of fun.
0: Even though it's this stupid, you know, slapstick, funny thing that they're doing, you know, you step up there and you do that trumpet solo, even as corny or whatever as the song is, like you still feel like the passion and the emotion and the energy in that, and that I think is one of the things that's so cool, not only about. That, you coming on stage and playing with the band but just about how the band plays in general is they can take something stupid or silly you're still going to find that energy that passion that enthusiasm in what they're doing they don't half-ass anymore so they take something like this which is tongue-in-cheek but they come out, they do it justice, they bring you out, they bring Tom out to have you know have some fun with it. But they're still and and everybody's laughing and having a good time, but you still feel that energy and excitement that the band brings to the stage and gives to the audience. And there's just there's just something magical about that, regardless of what it is that they happen to be playing.
2: Yeah, I think it was at just at the right time, whenever that was. Whenever that song hit its peak. Yeah, I was on the radio a lot. There was a reason probably I didn't listen to the radio that much, you know. Getting back to them being all in about something. Absolutely. It's just like all in all the time. And if you if you just don't get taken over by that, then you're just not a musician when you're on stage playing with them. And that's the way it's always been. So it's like, okay, I'm all in. Because these guys are all in. And that's what you want with any group that you're playing with. It's like the audience deserves your Absolute 100%, right? Because you can, you need to be believable, but those guys are not faking it, you know? Absolutely. It's great. That's awesome.
0: All right, just to review the second set from the Hampton Coliseum on November 21st, 1998. They come out and they open the second set with Sabotage into Mike's Song, into Simple, into The Wedge, into Mango Song, into Free into ha ha ha, back into free. They close the second set with a weak upon groove and they encore the show with tub thumping with the amazing trumpet play of Carl Gears Gearhart and Tom Marshall on vocals. So, I mean, what a cool show. What a great weekend of music. If you are out there and you have not listened to Hampton 98, go and check it out, man. It is a lot of fun. A great example of fish in 1998. Skinny and I have talked a lot about the different eras and years of fish and different sounds that they produced in each of those years, and this really nails 98. As a separate year from what their sound was in 97 or even, you know, 99, 2000. And I'm obviously 98 was my year that I jumped on with Fish, So I have uh, an affinity for the shows that they played in 98. But this was just so cool. And I mean... Shit. Carl, thank you so much, man. It was so awesome to hear your impressions of this show, especially considering you played and just having you on and and talking about Roomful and talking about your Navy career and the giant country horns tour in 91. I mean, what a special opportunity for us. We couldn't be more grateful for your time today. And not just today, but the time you put in as we've prepared to to do this today, man. So from all of us here in Stummy Down, thank you so much for being with us. And I really feel like, you know, we kind of made a new friend. Over the course of this process, and when Skinny and I started this podcast, that was one of our primary goals. It was, you know, we wanted to talk about music and revisit shows that we had been to, and but we had also wanted to make some new friends along the way and and get their musical experience. And that's really what we're all about here. So thanks so much, bro. We're we're grateful.
2: Well, thank you, Josh. Thank you, Christian. Really, it's been a pleasure, and I really want to thank you most of all for for including me in your podcast. And I think what you guys are doing is great. I'm a subscriber and I'm able to, when I'm driving to my room full of gigs to listen to what you guys are doing, like I said to you offline there, you guys are real naturals and congratulations. And thanks for being educators as well, because we all remember our teachers, right? And you guys do a special, special thing, shaping the next generation. That's amazing. You don't get enough credit for that. So Thanks, and I do want to put in a plug, uh, Josh, to your dad. I listened to his uh, podcast the other day. Just you know, when he said "cowboy chords," man, I just I just started laughing. Uh, but what a, what a character! I hope I get a chance to meet Bill someday. And once again, just thanks, fellas. It's it's been a blast. I appreciate you having me on.
1: Well, Carl, we couldn't be happier to have you on, man. It's what an incredible ride. This has turned out better than I even expected to, which is like sometimes you know, we don't know what we're getting into, but just like this podcast, but we've gotten into something good and and you're a part of that. And, and we're so thankful. Real quick, before uh, we wrap this up, J-Dub, I just want to mention two purveyors of goods and coming up on holiday season and everything that that entails. First is the lot by Primal Soup, where not only can you hear this episode, but you can get foodie kits, which Carl mentioned the collaboration with the giant country horns or any other foodie kit that you want to get. They have an foodie kits has an unbelievable
0: line of fish songs that they do kits for. So definitely check their website out. They've
1: got you, your favorite song is on there guaranteed. Yeah, you. they got whatever you want. I mean, Josh is right about that, even though he cut me off. But still, <laughs> they do have great shit. I just want to say that there are other vendors on there that we have mentioned throughout last season especially that are really great as well. And then lastly, our good friend Scott Mitchell over at Fan Designs, which is P-H-A-N-D-E-S-I-G-N-Z. See what I did there, Carl? He ends his shop with a Z. Nice. (laughs) Just to bring it back around, Scott Mitchell has wonderful stuff too from all across the jam band scene, including Spafford, Grateful Dead, fish, pigeons playing ping pong. So he's got a lot of stuff that's newer and older. He's just got wonderful merch. Um, He's really easy with shipping and he is easy to contact and has great reviews too. So please, not only are you checking us out, you're checking somebody else out to help them and we're all helping each other. And we always say this, life is a circle, the community is a circle. And we've included Carl into that now and uh, we're really happy. So thank you so much. We're grateful for our listeners and That's all I got, J-Dubs.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Skinny. Awesome to support our partners as always. If you are interested in checking out Carl, he plays in a band called Roomful of Blues. They are currently on tour, so you can check them out. They are currently up in the New England area, so you can check them out there. And then they are also doing the legendary Rhythm and Blues Cruise in January, which I think Carl said was sold out, but you never know. You might be able to get a a secondary market Ticket or something like that. But if you also are going to be in New York for fish or in New York in general over the holiday season, Carl is going to be playing with his fellow giant country horns in the James Brown dance party. So you can take a look at that and try and get tickets to that. That is on December 30th. So another opportunity to get out there and see Carl and the giant country horns. That should be a pretty special evening altogether. If you want to continue the conversation with us, you can follow us on the socials. We are on Twitter at stub underscore me underscore down, and we are also on Instagram at the same address, stub underscore me underscore down. We will post the flyer for the James Brown Dance Party show on there just to make sure that everybody is aware of that, and definitely check them out if you're going to be in the city, and check out Roomful of Blues if you get the opportunity to do that. Carl, once again, thanks so much for joining us here on Stub Me Down. Skinny, awesome job. You are the best partner in the business. And this was so cool. I can't wait to get back into the rest of our off season here. We are going to be coming up on season three next spring. So stay with us for that. In the meantime, we will see you the next time you need to get out of your shitty seats and
1: down the path. See you guys. Bye, Carl. Thanks, man. Thanks, fellas bye